0: Good morning, and thank you for tuning in again. I hope this video finds that you and your families are still doing well. My name is David Creech, and I'm with the Northfield Boulevard Church of Christ in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. You can see the times of our services on the screen here, and you can check out our website at www.godsredeemed.org. And on that website in the upper left, we also have our times of services there. Today we're going to continue our study in the New Testament book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. If you uh, have your Bibles with you, go ahead and and be turning over to Acts chapter 8. Now last week, in chapters 6 and 7, we talked about seven men being appointed to serve in a specific capacity. And we talked about how one of those men, Stephen, was falsely accused of blasphemy, unjustly tried before the Sanhedrin, wrongfully convicted, and then brutally murdered for crimes he did not commit. Of course, the same thing happened to Jesus. And the same thing would be repeated many times against Christians down through the years. In his Sermon on the Mount, what we often refer to as the Beatitudes, Jesus would say in Matthew chapter five, In verse 11, verses 11 and 12, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Paul would tell a young preacher named Timothy, in Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 3, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And again in Second Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So even today, it should come as no surprise to us when we face hardships or trials, perhaps even persecution, in one form or another, because of the one whom we profess, because the world is at enmity, the world hates the one whom we profess, and because of the decisions we make or should be making based on that profession. We talked about uh, what Stephen saw as this was happening, how he gazed up into the heavens and saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and we talked about uh, two things that Stephen said as this was happening. Uh, oh, that we could have such faith uh, faith, excuse me, that we could have such faith that we could face even death with the face of an angel, as we saw in Acts chapter six and verse 15. Oh, that we could have that opportunity and presence of mind as we breathe our last to say in Acts chapter 7 and verse 59, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And, And that if we were falsely accused of something, even if it is to the point of death, that we too could say, as Stephen said in verse 60, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. I heard someone say one time that we need to remember that other people are not the enemy. Satan is the enemy, and other people are simply under his power, just like we were at one time, just like we were before Christ freed us. And just as I have done in previous lessons, I'm going to do a brief overview of today's lesson there in Acts chapter 8, and then we'll come back and, and sort of focus in on some of the finer details We see here in the beginning of Acts chapter 8 a great persecution against the church. And we see the results of that persecution. Christians could have scurried into hiding at the first hint of persecution, but they don't do that. Sure, they're scattered, but they went everywhere preaching the word. And one example that's provided for us is that of Philip. Recall that Philip was one of those seven men Chosen to handle that daily distribution that we talked about last week in Acts chapter 6. He'd had the hands of the apostles laid on him and the gifts of the Holy Spirit imparted to him through the laying on of those hands. Uh, We'll see in our lesson today, and let me kind of blow this up for you. Uh, We'll see in our lesson today uh, Philip traveling from Jerusalem north to Samaria. And you see here on the map there's Jerusalem. Uh, it's in this within this region called Judea. And then north of that was this region of Samaria. And within Samaria is a city also by the same name, Samaria. Uh, <clears throat> The people of Samaria saw the the miracles that Philip was performing, unclean spirits coming out of those people. Those who were paralyzed or lame were being healed. the The Holy Spirit used those miracles to get the attention of the people, and it worked. They listened to what Philip had to say. And it says that there was great joy in the city and many... Uh, believed and were baptized. Let me bring you back over to the class slides here. Well, we'll see that uh, even a sorcerer by the name of Simon was convinced. And by the way, the the word sorcerer is what is used by the New King James Version, but the Greek word is majivu, and it's the same word we get our word magic from. Uh, in fact, instead of using the word sorcerer here, a number of other translations state that Simon was one who amazed people with his magic. And we can see someone today doing magic tricks, and, and we can be utterly astounded, completely baffled, in fact, by how they do some of the things they do. but But as amazed and baffled as we may be, most of us still recognize that there is some trick, some sleight of hand that is behind it. Now, although such magic has, has evolved in complexity over the years, it is an ancient art. And, and, and many in years past, including the first century, could only explain what they saw as miraculous powers. But, but again, even this great magician recognized that Philip could do things that were not magic, but truly miraculous. So he was convinced and believed and was baptized. We'll see Peter and John sent from Jerusalem um, so that as apostles, they could lay their hands on the Samaritan believers and impart to them gifts of the Holy Spirit. We'll, We'll see that same Simon Uh, We call him Simon the Sorcerer as kind of a way to uh, distinguish between him and Simon Peter, I suppose. But but we see that Simon committing a sin by offering money to the apostles so that he too could impart these gifts through the laying on of his hands. And and we'll see what was done about that. And then the remainder of chapter 8 is about Philip being called away by the Holy Spirit from this this great work that's going on in Samaria to go preach to a man from Ethiopia who departed Jerusalem and was on his way home. And that would have been a a journey of considerable distance. So let's drill down a little more into the details of chapter 8. As chapter 8 begins, uh, we see the same Saul that we mentioned during the stoning of Stephen. Do you remember what his role was in that? Well, Acts chapter seven and verse 58, if we just back up a few verses here, says that the witnesses, that is those that stoned Stephen, laid their clothes, their outer garments, at his feet, uh, presumably so he could keep an eye on them. We talked about that last week and how that it mentions that he was a young man. Uh, at, that, at that point, that's all we knew. There was this young man named Saul, and, and those that stoned Stephen laid their outer garments at his feet. I mean, at that point, we didn't have any clues as to why this young man came to be there at that particular time. Um, he would have been too young <clears throat> to to have actually been a member of the Council of, of Elders that history calls the Sanhedrin. Um, was he just a young man who happened to be passing by at this particular moment and was volunteered for the job? Or as we would say in the army, he was volunteered for the job. Um, <clears throat> but but here in Acts chapter 3, in the first few verses, uh, we learn a little bit more. We learn that Saul consented to the death of Stephen. Now that, that implies at least some knowledge about what was going on and why Stephen was being stoned. And that Greek word translated as consented there in the very first verse. Um, It's an interesting word. It it literally means that Saul approved. But but even more than that, that he was pleased with the death of Stephen. Now, now the New American Standard actually says that, that, um, that Saul was in hearty agreement. Uh, later in the book of Acts, we'll we'll see the same Saul who has been converted to Christianity. His name is changed to Paul. He's retelling this story and filling in some of the missing pieces of the puzzle, so to speak. And one of the things that we learn over in Acts chapter 22 and in verse 3 is that although Saul was born in Tarsus, and sometimes we call him Saul of Tarsus for that reason, Uh, he was brought up in Jerusalem at the feet of Gamaliel. Now recall that Gamaliel was that member of the Sanhedrin, a Pharisee, one respected by all the people. Now over in Acts chapter 23 and verse 6, Paul says that uh, he himself was a Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee. So this Saul... was from a long line of pharisees and was being taught by one of the best a pharisee named Gamaliel um, who was part of this council of elders that tried and convicted and sentenced and even executed Stephen for blasphemy uh, on the basis of false testimony if you'll recall Uh, this likely explains why Saul was there in the first place you know no doubt as a student of Gamaliel He spent a lot of time quietly observing the activities and the decisions of the council, and also why he heartily agreed with the stoning of Stephen. Uh, After all, under the old law, the penalty for blasphemy against God was death by stoning. And remember that the Pharisees represented the strictest sect of Judaism when it came to upholding both oral and written traditions. Um, We'll see that from Acts chapter 8 and verse 4 onward, let's jump back over to that, uh, that that the execution of Stephen seemed to ignite a fire under those that were opposed to Christianity. And we see what is described in verse 1 as a time of great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Now, verse three gives us just a brief glimpse of the severity of that persecution, uh, saying that this same Saul made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. Can you imagine this? This this army of zealous Jews going from house to house, searching for Christians and, and finding them dragging out of the, dragging them out of their homes. Picture children screaming and that sort of thing and, and, and binding them and throwing them into prison. Can you imagine anyone ever doing something like that in the name of God? Over in Acts chapter 22 in verse 19, <clears throat> Paul admits that he went from synagogue to synagogue searching for Christians and, and finding them had them beaten and thrown into prison. So so we get a picture of this man leaving no stone unturned in order to rid Judaism of these Christians. In Acts 26, verses 10 and 11, we see even more the gruesome details of this time of great persecution. As Paul admits that he compelled the Christians that he found to blaspheme, and, and when they were put to death, In verse 10, it says that he cast his vote against them. In other words, his vote was that they be put to death. Now as we jump back over to Acts chapter 8 and verse 4, we see that the result of all that persecution was that the Christians were scattered. And as we previously stated, we don't get the impression that they were just a miserable lot of scared Christians on the run But it says that they went everywhere preaching the word. And as we pointed out in our overview of the first 12 chapters of Acts, no doubt Satan did his best to snuff out the church in its infancy. But this great persecution was like throwing water on a grease fire and the gospel message just spread everywhere. So talk about unintended consequences. Talk about all things, even intense persecution in this case working together for good as we see over in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 recall the words of Jesus back in uh, Acts chapter uh, 1 and verse 8 that they would be witnesses of him in Jerusalem and in all Judea uh, all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So we see Jerusalem, and then we see Judea, and Samaria, and ultimately uh, to the ends of the earth. <clears throat> well, you know, from Acts chapter 2 through Acts chapter 7, it's all about Jerusalem. Uh, beginning here in Acts chapter 8 and verse 4, we see the gospel message being taken to the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria. Come back over to the class slides. There we go. So let's talk some more about Simon the Sorcerer. Uh, He's a resident of Samaria, where where Philip goes to preach. Apparently, as a sorcerer or a a magician, he's very good at what he does, because Acts chapter 8 and verse 9 says that he astonished the people of Samaria. And verse 11 tells us that he had done so for a long time, uh, claiming to be someone great. And verse 10 says that because of this, everyone listened to what he had to say and even made the claim that he had the great power of God. Then comes the but in verse 12, Uh, what I've got highlighted in pink there. Uh, when, When used as a conjunction, the word but introduces a phrase or a clause contrasting with what has already been stated. So the people of Samaria were astonished by Simon the sorcerer and they thought he, he was some great person of God and he listened to what he had to say as if he was some great person of God. But when Philip came along, they saw the things that he was doing by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and in verse 12 it says, they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. He, he didn't claim that he was someone great, but that Jesus was someone great. And in contrast to Simon the magician, he did have the great power of God. And, and the result of that we see in verse 12, both men and women, were being baptized. I don't know if you're starting to notice a pattern here in the book of Acts, but every time someone heard the gospel message and they believed it, they were baptized. Every time. There has not been one exception up to this point, and I'm going to give you a little spoiler here. There aren't going to be any exceptions. Now, verses 14 through 18 talk about Simon's sin, and from that we learn how Christians should respond to sin after baptism. And speaking of that, <clears throat> there were a number of years down through church history, uh, not in the Bible, but after the first century, where, where men believed that sins committed after baptism could not be forgiven. And the passage that was cited for that is over in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. This says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. However, that passage is about those that have become so insensitive. Okay, And this is written to Christians, right? To Christians that have become so insensitive, whose hearts have become so hardened by the deceitfulness of sin that the gospel message no longer affects them. How do I know this passage is not talking about Christians who commit sin after baptism? How do I know that? Well, because other passages rule out that interpretation. We know from 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Therefore, we always need to examine what all Scripture says about a particular topic. And over in 1 John, uh, that's a letter that the Apostle John wrote to Christians. He says in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And then in verse 9, he goes on to tell us that if we confess those sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us of those sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So from that I know that if I sin as a Christian, all I have to do is confess that sin to God and ask forgiveness, and He will forgive. The point I'm trying to make here is that for many years, people thought that any sin committed after baptism could not be forgiven. So there was this hesitancy to be baptized until much later in life. People would wait as long as possible before being baptized. Or perhaps some even had the thought that they could simply commit all the sins they wanted to commit, and once they had their fill of sin, that they could be baptized and have all those sins washed away. I guess the idea was that they would then live out the remainder of their lives in, a, in sin-free holiness. And that really misses the point. But here in Acts chapter 8, verse 14 and following, the Holy Spirit provides an example of someone sinning after baptism and what they did about it. Now, as we mentioned earlier, even Simon the sorcerer recognized that his magic tricks paled in comparison to what Philip was able to do through the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember that we said that part of the Holy Spirit's role was to reveal truth and to confirm it. And that confirmation came through the miracles and signs and wonders done first by the apostles and then through the laying on of the hands of the apostles. And we see that confirmation in action here with Philip, where where even Simon the sorcerer believes and is baptized and continues to be amazed, as it says in verse 13, by the things that he saw. So what was this sin? Well, we alluded to it earlier in our overview of the first 12 chapters of Acts. The apostles back in Jerusalem hear about this great reception of the gospel in Samaria. And so they send Peter and John to Samaria. Uh, Why did the apostles do that? Why did they send Peter and John? Well, the answer is right here in verses 15 through 17. So that they could pray for them and lay their hands on them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Now, why couldn't Philip just do that? The apostles had laid their hands on him. He had received gifts of the Holy Spirit. He'd been using those gifts in Samaria. So why didn't Philip just lay his hands on the people so that they could receive the Holy Spirit in the same way? Well, because the gifts of the Holy Spirit could only be imparted through the laying on of the hands of the apostles. And that's where Simon's sin comes into play. Uh, and I can see my head's blocking some of the PowerPoint context context again. Um, Simon offers money to Peter and John because he saw in verse 18 that through the laying on of their hands, the Holy Spirit was given. He didn't offer money to them so that he could receive a gift or gifts of the Holy Spirit. For all we know, that had already happened. But what he did was offer them money so that he might be able to bestow that gift to others by, by laying his hands on them. And while that sounds like a noble request, we see from Peter's response that such a gift was not for sale. Looking here in Acts chapter 8 verses 20 through 23 here, Peter says your money perish with you and tells him in verse 21 that that his heart is not right with God and in verse 22 that he needed to repent of his wickedness and pray to God for forgiveness. Then he adds the scathing words of verse 23 you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Wow, now this this rebuke may seem a little extreme to us just based on Simon's simple request, but remember that Peter through the Holy Spirit had the ability to know the hearts of men. We saw that with Ananias and Sapphira back in Acts chapter 5. And what Peter saw at the root of this request was a a bitterness that had developed in Simon. The Hebrews writer warned other Christians about this very thing. Over in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 15, he says, Looking carefully, Uh, remember this is written to Christians, uh, looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. So let me just stop right there and ask this question. Can, Can a Christian fall short of the grace of God? Some would answer no to that question. The Hebrew's writer seemed to think otherwise. He seemed to think that it was possible. Shouldn't we? And the last part of verse 15, Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. So there's a couple of questions we need to ask ourselves from this entire dialogue here. At the end of Acts chapter 8 and verse 13, was Simon the sorcerer saved? Now it says that he believed and was baptized, that he continued with Philip. The the inescapable conclusion is that he was saved. I, I don't know of anyone that would deny that. But let's fast forward over to Acts chapter 8 and verse 23. Was Simon the sorcerer still saved? Was he still in a saved condition? Can a person who is poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity still be saved? Some would answer yes to that question. But remember that Peter said in verse 20, your money perish with you. And in verse 21, you have neither part nor portion in this matter. If your answer is yes to that question, if if you believe that Simon was still saved, then why did Peter tell him to repent of his wickedness and pray for forgiveness? Why did Simon ask Peter to pray for him in verse 24, that none of these things that Peter had mentioned would come upon him? Just something to think about as we continue our study in Acts. And finally, in Acts chapter 8, we come to this Ethiopian eunuch. Now, what do we know about the Ethiopian eunuch? I mean, besides the obvious that he was from Ethiopia and that he was a eunuch. Well, let's just kind of read Acts chapter 8, verse 26. And we'll read down a ways. Now, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise, and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading, Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation his justice was taken away, and who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and, beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Well, in this set of passages, we learn that uh, this man from Ethiopia was of great authority serving under the queen of the Ethiopians. If you're wondering about that word eunuch, it can refer to someone who voluntarily abstains from marriage, or it can refer to someone who is born with a condition that prevents them from being with a woman. But it was also a common practice in those days that that men working in the service of a king or a queen would be Um, surgically altered so that they could not be with a a woman. And that's most likely the case here. Jesus actually talks about the different kinds of eunuchs over in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 12. Uh, We also see that this man was a believer. He was a worshiper of God. Now, Now, we don't know if he was a Jew who was born or possibly raised in Ethiopia or if he was a proselyte, okay? That, that's a Gentile convert to the Jewish faith. But but either way, he'd been traveling, uh, he'd been to Jerusalem to worship. Uh, no doubt he was there for Pentecost, and because of the, the great distance he had to travel, he likely would have been there for Passover as well, uh, and just stayed in between those times. Uh, At this point, he is on the road between Jerusalem and Gaza. And let me blow this up just a little bit. We can see Jerusalem right here. And we can see Gaza over here. And we can see that road that runs in between. Okay, the road to Gaza. Now, This was the first, just the first segment of a long journey back home. Here in this map, we see you know, Jerusalem up here, and we see Ethiopia down here. Uh, we're not certain exactly what part of Ethiopia he was traveling to, but you can see it would have been a considerable journey. Just, just looking at the scale that's provided there, it looks like about an inch and a half on the map is 500 miles, so as the crow flies, Uh, anywhere from 1,200 to 1,600 miles, depending on where in Ethiopia it was going. And by foot, it would have been a longer distance. So just keep in mind that this is a very long journey. Okay, jump back over to the class slides. Now, talking about that road that uh, is leading between Jerusalem and Gaza, we see from verse 26, Uh, the New King James Version says, this is desert. Uh, Other translations will variously call this a a desert road or a deserted place. The Greek word translated desert here simply means a desolate, lonely, uh, solitary, or uninhabited place. So it's on this long stretch of desolate road that Philip meets up with this man from Ethiopia who's riding in his chariot. And I want you to notice from verse 28 that he's reading his Bible. Now, obviously, he wouldn't have been reading the same Bible that we have today. The New Testament hadn't even even been written down yet. And and he wouldn't have called it a Bible, but simply scriptures. Uh, He would have had scrolls or parchments from various Old Testament books. We know from verse 28 that he was reading from Isaiah and we know from the italics down in verse 32 that he was reading from Isaiah chapter 53. And one thing that crosses my mind here is how easy it would have been for this man who had just concluded his annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem uh, to just, <clears throat> and of course, has this long journey home to just kind of kick back and relax, possibly thinking to himself, you know, I'm sure glad that's over with for another year, but. No, we see a man that was hungry for more, a man who was digging into the scriptures, a man who was possibly trying to make sense of some things in his mind. So how is it that that Philip happened to be here in this desolate place? We just saw Philip in Samaria, and now here he is on this desolate road to Gaza. He was there because the Holy Spirit told him to go there in verse 26. And in verse 31, we see that this man was not in a saved condition. And in verse 39, he is in a saved condition and he goes on his way rejoicing. And we said it before that the book of Acts is a book of conversions uh, because it is absolutely filled with examples of, of people being converted, people being saved. We said that everywhere we turn today, we we see someone with a different answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? But we also pointed out that we can simply turn to the pages of the New Testament and read what people in the first century did to be saved. And we can know that if we do what they did, we will be just as saved as they were. So obeying the gospel is as simple as doing what this man did between verses 31 and 39. What did he do? Well, first of all, he listened to the gospel as Philip explained it to him. He expressed an interest in verse 36 in uh, obeying the gospel. He asked the question, here's water, what hinders me from being baptized? Now when it says in verse 35 that Philip preached Jesus to him, we don't know exactly what was said, but the inescapable conclusion is that it must have included the necessity of water baptism. Otherwise, why would he have asked this question? How would he have known to ask this question if Philip never mentioned it? It must have also included the mode of baptism. If if pouring or sprinkling would have been sufficient, then this Ethiopian, being on a long journey like he was, was sure to have plenty of water available for that at, at any point on this trip. So why here? Why here in this spot? Well, it's clear from verses 38 through 39 that this baptism was an immersion in water. Note that it says, that they went down into the water and they came up out of the water. In fact, this word baptism comes from the Greek word baptizo, which, which means to immerse or to submerge. It's only been in relatively recent history that the word baptize has come to take on so many different meanings. Uh, it was even said of John the Baptist over in John chapter three and verse twenty three, that that he was baptizing people in a particular place, Enon near Salim. The name of the place is not nearly as important as the why. Why was he in that particular place? Because there was much water there. This Ethiopian man listened to Philip's response. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 37, if you believe with all your heart, you may. The unit replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now remember the great confession we talked about earlier from Matthew chapter 16 and verse 16 and and how it was on that very confession that Jesus said he would build his church. And we see a perfect example of that right here. And finally, we see in verse 38 that he obeyed and was baptized. We're out of time for the day. Uh, Thank you for watching or or listening, whichever the case may be. Tune in next week, and Lord willing, we'll spend some time talking about the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Now, recall from Acts chapter 8 and verse 3, that this man who was wreaking havoc on the church, this is the same man who was wreaking havoc on the church, he had been going from synagogue to synagogue, like we talked about earlier, beating Christians that he found there, compelling them to blaspheme. He went from house to house, dragging Christians from their homes, binding them, putting them in prison, even casting his vote against them for their deaths. And and recall from Acts 26 and verse 11, he was so enraged against Christians that he persecuted them even to foreign cities, it says. So next week, we're gonna see him doing just that. As he has received permission from the high priest to do the same thing in the synagogues of Damascus that he'd been doing in Jerusalem. And Damascus is, is far to the north in Syria. And with great zeal toward God, he's looking to find Christians, bind them, and bring them back to Jerusalem, presumably to stand trial. Sounds like a wonderful resume for a gospel preacher, doesn't it? Well, we're going to see that as he's traveling this road to Damascus, uh, something happens, something incredible, something that would change his life forever, and not only his life, our lives as well. Until next week.